Contact lenses are really important to the independent doctor. And one of the things that is really tough for them is that the patient will order one or two boxes and then leave. And so this has been a challenge for many years and one that Marlowe meets head on. Marlowe meets the consumer where they want to be met. They're on their phones, they can order the way they want to order. It's finally solving a problem that's been part of independent optometry for many years. That prescription would have left and nothing would have been purchased at the practice, but now through Marlowe, because it's so easy, because the patient is being met where they want to be met, and because they're able to use Marlowe to reorder, they're doing so and the practices love it. Marlowe is an innovative digital platform, and I think that's what really draws the attention of the doctor. It is a great way for a practice to be able to capture uh, the patient purchasing from them. But Marlowe does it in a way that's very convenient, very simple, and we know everybody wants great digital platforms, and Marlowe brings that to the practice in a great way. Marlowe modernizes independent optometry. Hi, welcome to another episode of I Own a Business, where we focus on helping practice owners grow the practice of their dreams. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Vargo, and I have with me Dr. Carmen Simon, who is a cognitive neuroscientist and also author of a fascinating book called Impossible to Ignore, Creating Memorable Content to Influence Decisions. So hello, Dr. Simon. Thank you so much for inviting me and um, welcome, everyone. So this is a, as we were just discussing, this is a podcast for eye care professionals. So some of the regular listeners might be wondering why we invited a cognitive neuroscientist on the show, but I think this will make more sense as we get into it. But if first, if you don't mind, maybe just giving a little bit of background on yourself and what got you interested in, in the topic of your book. I think you and I have uh, this uh, nerdy fascination with, uh, with neuroscience. Uh, I have a healthy addiction for brains. And um, I am intrigued by how much the brain remembers and even more so by how much the brain forgets. I apply this um, knowledge to a business context. So I think this is what our audiences will find beneficial because I want to study the brain in a way that translates into practical guidelines for practitioners. And I like that this is about uh, I own a business because often attention paves the way to memory and um, things that we see are uh, more likely to conduce <laughs> us to uh, form some memories versus things that we don't see. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of interesting takeaways even with just there in terms of what we remember, what we forget. And that's really what we're gonna get into and, and even the visuals, right? And creating, as we get into a few questions here, I'm, I'm curious your take on how to create stickier messages. And I think you've already alluded to one way, creating visual storytelling, things like that. Your book, it, it was, I, we talked before we hit record here, just, I, I was fascinated with a lot of the uh, topics that you covered. It covers a lot of interesting areas, but one theme of the book that really resonated with me was this, this topic of how can we impact decisions and doctors and healthcare professionals I spend a lot of time trying to influence behaviors, whether that's getting people to eat healthier, start exercising. In my industry, it, it could be wearing sunglasses outdoors or taking your contact lenses out at night, but we often run up against a fair amount of resistance from patients. 
And from a communication standpoint, that's an area that I've tried to understand better. How do we get patients to decide in favor of things that that benefit their health, their well-being, or in our case, their vision as well? So, so your book, as your book stresses, people make decisions on what they remember, not what they forget. And and you even said earlier, you know, that your interest is in what we remember, but also there's there's a lot we forget. And and we spend a lot of time as doctors, healthcare professionals, educating patients on conditions, treatment, side effects, and on and on. But so how much of that information can we actually expect patients to remember? Unfortunately, not a lot. But fortunately, you can be in charge of the little that people remember after a while. And I say a while because in the business context where I operate and um, I use mainly uh, EEG, so we capture an electroencephalogram signal. I showed you a, a picture of an electrocardiogram signal and people exposed to messages an eye tracking signal, and also a GSR, a galvanic skin response signal. So based on those, we also give people a memory test after 48 hours from being exposed to a business message. In our context is a business message. I know that for you, it's still a message, even though in a different context. But after 48 hours, we recognize that people forget about 90%, sometimes even more from the messages that they're exposed to. I say even more because it's possible that people retain only 3%. It's possible that they take away nothing. And after 48 hours, they ask what message or what presentation. So it's a very humbling moment. And we're not so concerned about the rate of forgetting. What we're more concerned about is can you be at least in charge of the small amount that gets to stay in people's minds long-term? And um, we call that a metaphorical 10% message. Let's call it that because we know that on average, it's just a small amount. And um, for the rest of the session, perhaps we can tackle some uh, practical ways as to how to control your 10%. Because if you don't, then what happens is not only do people retain very little, but what they take away is random. Sometimes in the context that you're describing, it's only a one-on-one -on -one interaction, but perhaps sometimes you want multiple people to remember the same things. <laughs> And they will not unless you are very deliberate about that message you want to put in somebody's mind and you want to trust that you will stay there for a while. So there's no general consensus or or no, as far as what they'll retain, if we look at that 10%, I could have a, a, a conversation with you and try to educate you on, on some medical concerns that I have. And the next patient could come in at the exact same scenario, but you're not necessarily going to remember the same thing. Is that accurate? Exactly. Unless you, the communicator, are very deliberate and start taking charge of that. So for example, let's just make this uh, the main message of our session today. Let's just say that we want all of our listeners or viewers for today to take away this message, control your 10%. How do we get there? Well, there is no secret. Repetition is the mother of memory. So perhaps you will hear us say that uh, phrase, control your 10% multiple times. Notice how the words are also very easy to roll off your tongue. I'm not using any kind of um, uh, obscure lingo. I'm not um, putting in some linguistic complexity. I'm not making it sound unnecessarily sophisticated in some way. It's using words that many people find familiar. The word control is also alluding to a reflex that we have which is to take charge of our environment. So I'm, all, I'm already linking it. You're talking about the science of decisions, linking it to something that feels reflexive to the brain already and doesn't impose a lot of cognitive effort. On the contrary, it has cognitive ease. 
So for our listeners, as you're thinking about in terms of practical guidelines and you're thinking about a message that you want to be memorable, ask the question, does it have cognitive ease? Does it contain words that people are likely to find familiar and not struggle a lot repeating later on when you're no longer in the room? I love that part about the repetition because a phrase I've used, I, I can't take credit for it, but I thought it was very true. I can't, so I'm not sure who said it, but it, the, the quote was, when you're tired of hearing yourself say it, that's when people are starting to hear it. But it could <laughs> accurately then be said, when you're tired of hearing yourself say it, that's when people are going to remember it as well, that, that repetition component. You know where I use that a lot? Not as much with patient care, but I work with a lot of, we work mostly with independent practices and the doctors own their own practice and they've got a staff. And something I hear all the time from owners, and this probably isn't unique to, to our employers, is that I told them once, but everybody, nobody seems to remember or, or nobody does it. So there is value in, in repetition is what you're saying. Absolutely. And there's value, not that you just in some repetition, but in a lot of repetition. And we can get to some uh, some numbers, but um, about a year and a half ago, I did this uh, neuroscience study where I was looking at business content and how much repetition it takes for you to be in charge of what people take away. And I started with this principle that is just such a, a popular adage in the world of communication, which is tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. And I had, I had a hunch that this is not sufficient because if you think about this, it's called the T3 principle, you're only saying to the brain something in the beginning, like this is important to remember, control your 10%, for instance, then you do a lot of telling in the middle. And then at the end, perhaps you come back and you summarize it and you say it again. In our case, it would be control your 10%. But those two signposts are not sufficient for you to be in charge of that message in a verbatim kind of way almost. And um, I was noticing that at least a six times repetition, sometimes even more within a 10 minutes, for instance, conversation is starting to get to the brain, observing a pattern and noticing that something indeed starts to repeat uh, itself. So just when you think that you're too repetitive, think again, because you probably are not, since it takes a lot of exposure for the brain to start detecting patterns. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just listening to a podcast where the the um, the person being interviewed, I don't remember her title, but she said the, the brain is a pattern recognizing machine. And and it's interesting mm -hmm. because it she said it that's what it's looking for is is the pattern. So it would only make sense that the repetition plays into that as well. Exactly. So you're doing it for the pattern recognition. The reason you all, you also want to repeat a lot of the same message that you think is critical is because in order to get to long-term memory, so you were talking about what people have remember after 48 hours, you have to pass through working memory first. And working memory is this repository that uh, has capacity limitations, and um, it only holds a few items until people have to, re to complete a cognitive task. Let's just say that you're talking to a patient, and in a few moments, they have to do something based on what you said. They have to retain those moments, uh, those elements in that moment for a little bit. And most people can retain about three items and keep them online for about 30 seconds to a minute. Highly intelligent people can pirouette a few thoughts in their minds that are additional, but typically the stage for working memory is very small. And when you're addressing some things and then some time passes by more than 30 seconds or a minute, the only way to refresh those is if you, is if you indeed apply what we call retro cue. So you come back to the past and you repeat that message again, control your 10% if we are to stay true to our mantra for today. And unless there is that retro cue, that repetition, then those items will be gone and they start being replaced with new items. So it's no wonder that you exit the room 
And almost immediately, people will have forgotten <laughs> most of the things just because of those working memory limitations that we have. And when we forget, we're less likely to act on it, right? Because something in my industry that comes up a lot was, I'm just planting the seed today. So maybe you have a specialized service or a high-end product, and, and you're just introducing the patient that day, but you don't necessarily expect every patient to, to buy into that, whether it's a product or it's a service. So I hear a lot in my industry, I'm just planting the seed now. But if they leave and that seed doesn't grow, right, it's problematic because if they don't remember it, they're not going to act on it later. They're not going to call you three weeks later and say, hey, remember that thing we were talking about if they don't remember what you were talking about. Exactly. So you're planting the seeds. And what happens if they remember a different seed than what you wanted them to, to remember? That's where the, uh, the critical uh, item is, because memory is not only fallible, but quite often is so random. Like I remember this keynote speaker, he talked about some um, high-end technology and he delivered a keynote for about 45 minutes. And uh, I was pulling some people in the audience to see what is it that they took away after the 45 minutes. And at some point, the person said that he heard the statistic that in Italy, 17% of people believe that it's okay to have sex and talk on the phone at the same time. And that's what people took away. And that was definitely not his 10% message. Like if, if you had asked him, what do you hope people say about your presentation after uh, you walk off the stage? That would not have been his pride and joy. That was such a, such a tangential thing. So just make sure that it is a seed that you indeed have planted and is important to you and to them that people take away. The, I use the term a lot, cursive knowledge, which people with a lot of information sometimes have. And it's basically, yes. we understand something so well that it's hard for us to translate it for somebody else in a way that's understandable to them. And, and doctors are guilty. That I've been guilty of this in the past, but you mentioned before using terms that are going to be familiar to the patient. I think it really gives pause to the doctors who, I remember when I first came out of school and I started practicing I was 26 and I probably looked like I was 12. And I remember actually intentionally using big words, medical terminology to look smart. You know, I had a little bit of imposter syndrome when I was really young. And I realized now the, the faults of that was the patients, if they can't relate to it, if it's not familiar to, with, to them, then it's going to create a, a problem in, in translating that message. You're so right. And here are some uh, most recent studies uh, that I've done on um, the specific language that we use in uh, in business. And at some point, they might translate into a customer-patient conversation as well. I was asking a question that would allude to what you just said in terms of using sophisticated words. I tested a few word types because I was looking at business jargon. And business jargon is composed of acronyms. And um, I wonder how much in this context, people do enjoy some of their acronyms for us in business. Everybody sprinkles in the AI and machine learning ML currently. Um, also, business jargon is composed of um, highly complex phrases, like um, people will, um, will say ascertain instead of find out, or they would say subsequent instead of next, or they will say... Um, to endeavor versus to do. And you see how that just puts you at a different uh, different level. I was also looking at cliches like win-win um, or game changer or results-driven business outcomes. Everybody enjoys these types of uh, phrases. And my surprising finding was that the brain actually finds comfort in the cliche. People were not as bothered as I thought they would be by those. And I suspect it's because a cliche phrase will have that familiarity, that comfort. And it 
in packages up some meaning without much cognitive effort. Whereas those complex phrases like ascertain and endeavor and subsequent, those take you a little bit more. So I would advocate to anyone who's listening to be very cautious about that cognitive ease that you associate with your message as you control your 10% and ease off of the ones that make you sound more sophisticated. And every so often sprinkle, sprinkle in something that might seem a bit cliche because that will come with familiarity. I read somewhere that the number one source of miscommunication between doctor and patient is the head nod. So the doctor's talking and the patient's nodding their head up and down and the doctor assumes that the patient understands when in reality, it's just the patient expressing a polite gesture to let the doctor know that they're listening. And patients aren't going to interrupt you most of the time to tell you, I don't understand. Some will, some will question it. Others don't want, maybe they don't want to appear like they don't understand what they're talking about, or they're going to feel like they're wasting your time. If they have to keep interjecting, I don't understand what that means, but it, it leaves a lot of patients not really understanding uh, what maybe what the doctor said and leaving them with confusion. And, you know, I, I've, I've done this before in a presentation of, I've asked the audience members, many of which are, are doctors to do an experiment. I said, the next time you spend a long time with a patient and it's a slippery slope because I never want to come across like I'm saying that patient education is a, is a bad thing, or we should deprive people of the information that they they need. But I'm, I'm trying to strike that balance between what we're talking about, how much we forget, and how do we deliver a message that's going to be more sticky. But I, I've told audience members before, the next time you have a patient where you spend a long time educating about all the treatments, the side effects, the different options, the research, the data, and you feel good about yourself because you feel like, okay, I've got this patient now who's thoroughly informed. When that patient comes back for a follow-up, even if it's just a few days later, do an experiment and say, we talked about a lot of things last time. I just want to see if there's anything I need to go over. Can you tell me what you remember? And, and yes. I joke that you'll probably get a look of sheer terror come over their face. Like in school, when we were told we there's a pop quiz that we weren't ready for. And then next, you'll probably realize how little they actually remember. So I, I've really stressed the, the importance of creating a sticky message. That's let's go there next because we've talked about the controlling yes. what that 10% can be. So I, I guess my question would be what how do you decide what that 10% is going to be? And then how do you deliver that in a way where it is going to be more memorable? It's a powerful question because it's not easy to get to the essence of something. Luckily, though, here we are talking to experts, and an expert would have it a little bit easier to get to the essence of a message compared to a neophyte. So um, if we're thinking about what we've talked so far in terms of controlling the 10% is making sure that uh, it's repeated often enough, making sure that um, it has cognitive ease in the sense of alluding to some familiarity, even the conversation we started to making sure that perhaps it's visual because you're talking up to an eye-oriented audience. But now let's talk to about perhaps one of the most important things, what is your 10% message? Clarify it first. And to clarify it, I like how you said how some people will walk into a conversation and they will share some education materials or some information and they'll walk away feeling good about themselves. I would say that a good 10% message is one that offers a reward for the other person so they feel good about themselves. And the only way to get there is to ask, what reward am I packaging in this 10% message? So if we were to pick an example, let's just pick a, a pop culture one. I, I like this book that I read a while back. It was called um, uh, by Michael Pollan. Are you familiar with Michael Pollan? I would love to read, but I am i don't believe I've <laughs> read anything by Michael Pollan. 
It's a, he's a brilliant writer. You might also see him. Uh, he has a special on uh, on Netflix. He teaches at uh, UC Berkeley. And um, Michael Pollan published a book that's called In Defense of Food. Now think about that message for a moment. He's defending food. How rewarding is that for all of us? Because we love to eat. It's, it doesn't matter who you are. At some point, you will enjoy eating something. And then his supporting points, by the way, for the one main message are eat food, not too much, mostly plants. You don't have to agree with that message, but notice how it has the cognitive ease. Notice how it will be easy for you to repeat it to somebody else or to yourself. And it'll be fairly easy to take it to the grocery store and do very well there. So sometimes I'll use that as a template, even for myself, as I, I create messages for various contexts. And I'll say, control your 10%. Is that similar to in defense of food? Like, yeah, fairly simple. Like it comes to, uh, to the mind fairly easily. It has words that are easy to pronounce. What are my supporting points? Are they similar to eat food, not too much, mostly plants? Um, often we would recommend, by the way, associating verbs with your 10% message. That's why you could control your 10%. Because as you're talking to someone, to a patient, to the staff, you want them to not just remember, but to act on what they remember and to increase the likelihood, then associate that with a strong verb. I tend to jot stuff down when I'm talking because my because the short-term memory is not good, right? So it's much. 30 seconds yes. to a few minutes. So, uh, and I've got right here, remember and act. I tend to, and, and maybe you already answered this question. I was going to ask for your thoughts. When I look, now that I understand this a little better from reading your book and that 10%, I a lot of times find myself telling people, if you're going to focus on something in that 10%, focus on what you want people to remember and what you want them to act on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So as you're bridging that gap, think about what's the verb associated with this. Like in here, we're saying control your 10%. That's the verb. And um, I do love the fact that you're writing things down. Perhaps that's a skill or that's um, another verb for all of our audiences to adopt. I finished a neuroscience study at the beginning of this year where I was looking to see what happens when the business brain watches something passively versus what happens when it's taking notes in the moment. And those notes can be in two forms, typed notes or handwritten notes. And the handwritten notes, hands down, one in these three experimental conditions. And um, there are many explanations for that in terms of the link between handwriting and memory, but just know that the link is there so if you ever have the possibility to write things down or invite even better, ask the patient to start writing things down, enable them to do so in the moment, because that definitely helps not only with that working memory, but with long-term memory as well. Yeah. And that's where I spend a lot of time is trying to influence decisions to improve outcomes, because I, I found that the something a lot of healthcare professionals struggle with, I know with in my industry, and I don't imagine my industry is unique in this sense, but a lot of doctors struggle with getting patients to be an adherent with their recommendations. Mm -hmm. they, it's like all of us. We might change for a short time, but then we go back to doing things the, the old way and that non-compliance, non-adherence, it's a real problem for the doctor and the patient. So it's an area I've tried to better understand. How can doctors be more impactful in the exam room, which challenges conventional wisdom in many ways? And I, I do think there's this theory out there that the longer I talk at you and the longer, the more information I give you, the more likely you're going to be to go along with this. But again, we have to balance that with psychology. And, and I read somewhere, maybe you agree, or that, it, that one of the most uncomfortable emotions for the human brain is uncertainty where our brains are constantly seeking clarity. And when we're uncertain about something, which doctors can easily 
create confusion for patients through some of the things we're talking about. But if the patient is left uncertain, sometimes that will cause us to hit pause on our decisions, which is why I, I, I find myself stressing the value of creating a, a very clear message for the patient that's very understandable. Mm -hmm. Understandable, which is what would eliminate some uncertainty. Therefore, the verb control, which is what we've been using for our session, control your 10%, that means you're eliminating some uncertainty. And if we look at how the brain makes decisions, luckily there isn't an infinite amount of ways in which people decide, your patients will decide. There are only three. Typically make decision, people make decisions based on reflexes, based on habits, or based on goals. Usually it's a combination. And the difference between the three is that reflexes and habits don't take as much cognitive effort as goals do. When you talk to a patient, perhaps you allude to things that are goal-oriented and now require some effort. People would much prefer to not think that much, that, that uh, often if we have the choice. So what's a way to include more reflex-like behavior as you're thinking about controlling your 10%? Well, one way that not that many, many people talk about, in addition to promising being in control of your environment, by the way, that's alluding to a reflex, it's this notion of making a message aesthetically pleasing. And as you're listening to this, you might think, well, but I'm not a graphic artist. I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm a staff member. I'm a business owner. I don't really know how to make something beautiful or aesthetically appealing. But if we give you some guidelines, you will know how to do that. For instance, what does the brain perceive, perceive as aesthetically pleasing? Something that is um, abiding by proximity, for instance. So you're grouping alike ideas together. You're not just going here, going there, going in another direction, just to realize that all those three things could have been grouped in the same thing. What's another uh, aesthetic principle that the brain enjoys? Contrast. If you can portray to the brain that this is what's happening right now, but this is what could be happening in the next day if you're abiding by these uh, things that I'm prescribing, and the sharp, uh, the contrast is sharp, the brain will find that beautiful, even though it might not be uh, uh, pleasing initially, but it will find that beautiful because now it can understand and perceive that contrast. What else is beautiful to the brain? Um, unity, when something is um, not just so unbalanced and uh, and looks like uh, it doesn't belong in a, in a sequence of things. Hierarchy of information. Sometimes you start with one main message, like we do control your 10%, and the rest is perceived as a subset of those messages. So it's very easy if you know some of these aesthetic-like principles to appeal to the reflexes that we have and not get the brain to think that much. So on contrast, I've used this analogy before in, in some talks, is something that optometrists experience every day, but they probably don't think of it that way anymore, which is better one or two. And I, I use this as an analogy because we've all seen, and you probably, you may have been the patient in this scenario, the patient's demeanor when the choice is obvious they're very confident and 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 self-assured in their answer. They answer right away, oh, that's one, that's two. They're feeling really good. But it's interesting to watch their entire demeanor change as the choices start to look very similar. Now it's long pauses. It's asking the doctor to show it to them again and again. Yes. And there's a sense of almost nervousness that they're going to pick the wrong answer. And, and I use that as an example of the impact that con that context or contrast has on the brain. We're, we use contrast, right, as one of the shortcuts to help us make decisions. We're always comparing things. So, so any situation where we're asked to, com to choose between competing options, you know, I tell people, help make the choice obvious in other areas. The same way that, that they see that 
that difference between the choices in the exam room, which is better one or two, if there's an area that you think a patient would be better served, but there's competing options, help make the choice obvious for them. So true. And, and I like how you're using the word obvious and no better audience than ours to understand this. The brain can appreciate contrast and use it as a shortcut to thinking if it perceives the contrast. <laughs> and we can quantify this perception of contrast. Sometimes if we do some experiments, for instance, and I wanted you to make sure that you detect when a sound is louder than another sound, I would have to make that subsequent, subsequent sound 30% uh, or 40% louder than the first one. If I wanted you to perceive something larger versus something that is smaller, I would have to make the difference between those uh, lengths at least 30 to 40%. Uh, same with brightness. So I would challenge any of our listeners or viewers to ask the question, what's my 30 to 40% difference if I were to portray contrast for somebody else's brain? So if you're guiding a patient, you're educating a patient and you're thinking this is your one option, but should you do this other thing and the two things are 30 to 40% apart, the brain will perceive that contrast and then that's more likely to act as a shortcut to thinking. So Dr. Simon, I want to close out here with something that Brene Brown calls data with a soul, stories. And that's something that I've learned through, through speaking, the impact that that has on memory, that we're much more likely to remember and retain a story than we are just facts and data and information. As we know, information alone can be surprisingly ineffective at, at getting people to to act on things. It, it's it we struggle to remember and retain, but it, but a story tends to stay with us much longer. I saw a Stanford study once that shows we're 22 times more likely to remember a story. So we mentioned visuals, and I see stories as kind of a uh, a mental the mental imagery that goes along with that. Has your research taken you in that direction at all in terms of the the stickiness of a story versus just delivering a message in in information and data form? Yeah, a few years ago, I did a study where I was asking the question, are all stories memorable? Because somehow we have this notion that if you share a story, then surely you're going to impact memory. And um, unfortunately, people forget stories very much like anything. And then to say, what should it should a story have in order to be memorable and earn a memory trace in somebody else's brain? There are typically three components that can earn you the right to say, I shared the story. And that uh, what you're referring to was the, the visual component. So typically a good story places you in a specific context that is highly visual. Like for instance, for a while, I was stuck on uh, the Golden Girls. Are you familiar with the show? I am, yes. The, and you probably like Sophia. You cannot help but like Sophia, who's one of, uh, in my opinion, the better storyteller. And her, how do her stories start? Picture it. It was 1929, Sicily. A poor peasant girl is walking down the street. So notice how suddenly you are in a context. You're in Sicily. It's uh, starting to become visual. A poor peasant girl, you can picture that. Notice how she's still sharing facts. So a cognitive component is also part of stories. So we know it's 1929. So facts are part of stories. But if you're only sharing facts, that means you're only sharing zoomed in stories. And what you're alluding to, data with a soul, is a third component for a, a narrative, which is an affective component. So at some point, you have to allude to some emotion. I'm sure you may remember from um, older books, um, this uh, comparison of somebody saying the king died and the queen died versus the king died and the queen died of a broken heart. So notice how the moment that you add that affective component, things change. 
So as our listeners are pondering the 10% message and how to make it memorable and influence decisions, quite often to make a decision, you have to have an emotional push. And um, luckily you're all operating in a context where health does come with its own emotional strings. So you're already starting from a strong uh, platform. Now wonder what kind of emotion is likely to push somebody forward. What, since we're talking about reflexes, one that I want to offer is altruism. Sometimes we're not pushed forward by our own motives, but if we were to be in service of somebody else, we might act better. And sometimes people have children, they have family members, and they might not do something for themselves. But if they say, I'm going to change this habit right now because I'll be a better father, I'll be a better somebody for to somebody else, then that comes with an emotional string as well that um, also doesn't take a lot of cognitive effort. I read something once about the term narrative transportation, that when we hear a story, a lot of times we transport ourselves into the character, into yes. the main character, and then we start asking ourselves, do I want this outcome? It, it's how I've related doctors perhaps integrating stories into the the uh, patient care process, in, in, in particular, patient stories, mm -hmm. stories that we've treated a patient, we've had great outcomes with that and using that as a, a way to, to communicate information or, or stories about patients who didn't follow the recommendations of their doctor and didn't have the outcomes. But there's this component called narrative transportation, where when we hear a story, we transport ourselves into that character and we start asking ourselves, do I want that outcome? And it could be good, it could be bad, but that, that could have an influence on, on our behaviors. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so so true. And if you apply this guideline in uh, in practical terms, think of it this way. The moment that you're asking somebody to mentally travel and to say, picture yourself tomorrow versus picture yourself next year, you have a choice now. And the further in the future you're asking somebody to imagine themselves, the more abstract the language, the closer to the moments that you're asking somebody to picture themselves, the more concrete the language. And often the, mo the brain is mobilized by concrete. So if you're bringing the future a little closer and you're using very concrete language, then yet again, you're more likely to influence some uh, very quick decisions that are beneficial for, uh, for the patients or your, uh, your audience. And uh, that too can contribute to a criteria for controlling your 10%. Use, use words that people not only can say, but also that they can picture in very concrete terms. Well, Dr. Simon, thank you so much, my fellow psychology nerd. This was great. Um, how can people find out more about you? And I would definitely recommend reading the book because there's so many great takeaways in that. I think for probably anybody, but as we hone in on, on doctors, I think there's a lot of takeaways there that could be implemented into that patient care process that could make you a much better and more effective communicator with your patient, which ultimately drives decisions, ultimately drives outcomes, which is really where we make an impact. It's not just the information we share, but what kind of a, a, a change took place, what kind of a transformation took place in patient care that led to better patient outcomes and better clinical outcomes. So where, where can people find out more about you and, and your book? Uh, just uh, search for uh, for Carmen Simon. Our company is called Core Provisions, and um, I'm uh, excited to stay in touch with you and with our audience because um, I'm working on a new book that's called Made You Look, and how appropriate than this audience because it is about the neuroscience of attention. 
and um, it should be uh, published uh, by uh, January. So um, let's uh, stay in touch. And um, if you found this practical, I hope we meet again. Yes, I can't wait. And definitely let me know when that comes out. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks again. So thanks to Dr. Simon and thanks everyone for listening. If you would like more information about IDOC and how we work with ODs to help them grow their practice, you can find out more at IDOC.net. So thanks for listening.